we come to a lovely psalm, Psalm 86, an urgent plea for grace. We're not going to work through it verse by verse because its structure doesn't really lend itself to that way of reading and dealing with this psalm as I see it. The psalm is a heartfelt plea, pouring out urgently, argumentally, emotionally the need. And so phrase pounds upon phrase and request upon request as David tells of his troubles to God and calls upon God to help him. Uh, There is logical connection between many of the parts of the psalm, so we can see the constant refrain of the little word for, which which means because. So verse 1, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to uh, to you do I cry all the day. So There is connection, there is logic with it, and there is a movement in the psalm from the urgent appeal in the opening verses to the declaration of God's greatness from verse 8 through to 13 to the spelling out of David's predicament in verse 14 and then the prayer for the satisfactory outcome at the last few verses. But it's not a simple linear kind of development throughout the psalm. He keeps going back and forth on each of these themes and recycling them and mentioning them again. So today, if you look in the outline, you will see that I've actually got about four different topics that I'm going to be dealing with, the situation, the plea, God and the relationship before spending a few moments looking at a wider canvas than just this psalm. So we start with the situation. And we learn about the man. Uh, From the title, you can see that it is David. But you learn most things about him from the psalm itself. He's poor and needy in verse 1. We don't know initially what his need is. He's going to spell that out in the psalm. But he's not coming as the king in his palace. He's coming as the poor man, the beggar in need. Uh, David spent a lot of his lifetime as the beggar, poor man, in the need until he finally came to be king. But his appeal in the psalm is not simply based on his need. It's also on the fact that he's godly, verse 2. This is not so much godly in the sense of being good, but godly in the sense of being on God's side. So the second half of the verse, you see, save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. The godly person is on the side of God. He may still be a sinner, in fact, he is and will be, but he knows that his identification is with God's side. This is the man who knows God, serves God, identifies himself with God, and so he's calling upon God to protect him because I'm one of yours. For he's a man who is prayerful. Notice verse 3, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. It's urgency that is being expressed in his description, to you do I cry all the day, but it's more than urgency. It's indicative of the whole orientation of his life, that he, in his godliness, if you like, he keeps on appealing to God for help. There's nobody else he can appeal to for help. There's no one else who can help him like this, and he consistently and continually is calling upon God to help him. Now, we don't know the trouble he is in till much later in the psalm. There are lots of sub-points for my outline today, so that's why they'll pop up here on the screen from time to time. So under point two, 
uh, be now under the trouble. We don't know it till later. In verse 13, he mentions being rescued from the depths of Sheol. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Sheol's a way of talking about the place where the dead go, the grave, if you like. He's been rescued from death, but it's a little difficult to translate as to whether it's something that's happened in the past or this is what you do or something that's going to happen in the future. It's more about God's protection from death than a particular episode of near-death experience. But you couldn't rule that out. He could be talking about something of the past. He just knows that God is the one who can rescue him from death. And that's pretty important because the second thing we know about his trouble is that he is surrounded by insolent men who are against me. Verse 14, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life. They do not set you before them. And so he speaks of these people who, in verse 17, those who hate me, these are the enemies. But they're not just his enemies, they're the enemies of God. They're ruthless men who would kill if they had a chance because they don't fear God who said, you shall not kill. They don't fear the God who has appointed David as the Messiah. They do not fear God when they are killing a godly man. They don't have God before their eyes. Once you see verse 14 and the problem he's got, you can then kind of read it back into the psalm. You don't know till verse 14 what the situation is, but then you look back at verse 2, preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant. Or verse 7, in the day of my trouble I will call upon you. You then start to know what he's trying. He's got people out trying to kill him. That would get you praying, praying earnestly, praying consistently. So what we have in this psalm is the man of God persecuted and in fear of his life, urgently, incessantly calling upon God for help, protection, safety, saving him. So let's turn to what he's asking, the plea, the prayer, so to speak. For remember, friends, the the meaning of the word prayer to pray is not to talk to God to pray is to ask for something you can pray to your father you can pray to your mother you can pray to the government you can pray to the king we don't use the word prayer like that much these days but the word pray just means to ask we've restricted the word pray to praying to God to asking God And then we've kind of expanded the word out to mean any conversation we have with God, even thanking God. And then some people have even pushed it further and said, it's listening to God. But you don't listen to God in prayer. You you ask God for things and you don't thank God in prayer. Praying is asking. So in the scriptures you'll see it says, pray with thanksgiving because thanksgiving is the other side of prayer I ask for something and then I thank God for giving it to me but praying is asking thanking is thanking and praying is asking God for things now prayer doesn't change anything the God to whom we pray he changes things and he changes things because we pray 
because we ask him of things. James chapter 4 wrote, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But notice the implications that come in that phrase, you do not have because you do not ask. If you did ask, you would have. That is, God gives you things because you've asked. Prayer doesn't change things, but God changes things in response to our prayers. And it is important, therefore, for us to understand about the nature of our prayers. I'm sorry, I've just shot past a thing here, a free advertisement for one of my books, Prayer and the Voice of God, which is available in the bookshop over here, which takes you through the whole idea of this meaning of the word prayer. Now, God listens to our prayer. So in verse 1 you can see that. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Or down in verse 7, for you answer me. But he's not answering in terms of speaking back to him. He's answering in terms of giving you what you ask for. That is how God answers, by giving us or by withholding from us the things that, that we ask for. Sometimes we ask for things that are not helpful to us. And so he withholds them from us. We, we're not very wise in what we want and what we don't want. Sometimes we ask for very foolish things. I remember asking my father for a, a, a help to buy an old beat-up second-hand car when I was a young man. And mercifully, my father refused sat me down kindly, explained to me the economics of owning a car and helped me see that it was a completely mad idea. A father who loves gives what a person needs, not necessarily what a person asks for. But a father who loves will answer by giving as we need. So prayer is important as God listens to our prayer and responds to us. Now, what our psalmist is asking for is rescue. That's his plea. I mean, it comes in lots of ways through the psalm, but each of them are different ways of asking for rescue. So he asks that God would preserve him and save him in verse 2. And again in verse 16, if you look down there, turn to me and be gracious to me, give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. He wants strength to survive. He wants the Lord to save him from the wicked men who are out to kill him. He wants God's gracious, he wants God's grace. Grace is another word for, for generosity, for mercy. It's, it's giving something to people. Giving because you want to, because you're generous. Giving not because people deserve it, but because you're generous, you're gracious. So giving especially to people who don't deserve it. And that's why the word is sometimes translated mercy, because that's what mercy is, isn't it? It's giving forgiveness to people who deserve to be punished, but you are giving mercy. Now, I call this study a plea for grace, for that's what it seems to me the psalm is about. Verse 3, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all the day. Or verse 6, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. Or verse 16, turn and be gracious to me. He wants the grace, the mercy, the generosity of God to help him 
And this grace is more than even rescue. He wants God to gladden his heart, verse 4. It's a lovely verse, verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. So here I am, I'm, I'm, soul means life. I'm placing my life in your hands. Gladden, make happy this life. For God is good and forgiving and generous and kind, he says in verse 5. So God is likely to gladden the heart of the person who so seeks it from God. He wants to move out of the deep despair and fear of his enemies into the joy of God's salvation. And so he asks God to turn to me, verse 16. Return to me, come back to me. Turn from the present course which is so threatening to me. Turn back and be gracious and give me your blessing to strengthen and survive, to be saved and to be glad. Uh, just as we are called upon to repent, so we can call upon God to repent. Repent does not mean feel sorry for your sins. It doesn't mean apologise for your sins. Repent just means change the direction you're going. It means stop going one way, turn back and go the other way. That's what repentance means. I don't know about you, but when I get in the car, especially as I leave home, I generally drive an automatic pilot. And so I'm driving along for some time and then I realise I'm on one of my usual tracks and that's not where I'm supposed to be going. That requires a repentance. I haven't sinned, I haven't done anything evil or wrong, I'm not a penitent in that sense, I'm just going the wrong way, that's all. And so I've got to stop, turn around and head back the other way. That is a repentance. And so God is taking the psalmist into the shadow of the valley of death at this point with enemies all around about and he's saying, God, please protect me, please save me, please come back to me and rescue me. Turn back from what is happening to me at the moment and be gracious to me and save me. But he's also asking that God would teach him. Teach me how to live your way. Verse 11 is a beautiful verse, isn't it? In fact, Psalm 86 is full of beautiful little verses that in a sense can be lifted out of their context without changing their meanings. Verse 11 is like that. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. You can put that into a cross stitch. It's worth having up on the wall somewhere, over the mantelpiece. It's a lovely verse. It's a lovely motto verse, that kind of one. He wants God to teach him how to live, that I might walk in your truth. And to have this single-mindedness, it's a phrase, isn't it? Unite my heart to fear your name. He wants this single-heartedness, single-mindedness, this sincerity of heart and mind. It's a wonderful part of his prayer. Unite my heart. Take with me the double-mindedness, the, the double-heartedness, the divided heart, the hypocritical heart that wants two contradictory things at the same time. Uh, our, our friend here, I think it's Rob Smith, wrote a song that is being sung quite often in churches these days about the undivided heart. Give me an undivided heart, one that is purely committed to the one cause. Uh, this was the problem 
that James is writing about in chapter 4. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here's the problem of the double-minded man. We want God's blessings, but we want it in our time, our place, on our terms, so that we can do our projects and we can go on living as if we are the God of ourselves. Jesus said you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve two masters or you'll love the one, hate the other, hate the one, love the other. Jesus said where your heart is there your treasure is also. The psalmist is saying unite my heart. Take away this this double-mindedness, this two aims and objectives of life. Unite my heart. But he's not saying it for the sake of psychological well-being. I may say, friends, it does give you psychological well-being. It's a good thing to have a solid purpose and aim in your life rather than be caught up with double-mindedness. But that's not the reason. Notice the reason he gives there in verse 11. Unite my heart to fear your name so that he can give thanks with his whole heart. Verse 12, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart and I will glorify your name forever. That's his goal. His goal is to be so united and single-purposed that he will give thanks to God with his whole being. He is putting himself completely in the hands and at the mercy of God. There's one more part of his prayer, and that's found in verse 17 that God would show a sign of favour. Verse 17, show me a sign of your favour that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Notice the reason for the sign. It's so as to shame the enemies. To show that the favour of God rests upon him and that God is on his side comforting and helping him and strengthening him. For what we see throughout this psalm is God. He's called by his name, Lord, Yahweh, in verse 1. Notice the capital letters. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and answer me. And he's called Yahweh like that in verses 6 and 11 as well. For that is the name of God whom he calls in verse 2, my God. More of that in a moment when we talk about that relationship with God. But notice what he says about God. Notice the great claim of verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. The gods the people worship, none of them are like God. The the heavenly beings that may exist, none of them are like God. Nor are their works as wonderful as his. Second half of verse 8, you see, nor are there any works like yours. For his God is, verse 9, the maker of nations. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. The other gods, the, the, the other gods don't make nations like God has. You wonder whether this psalmist could have even imagined 
the millions of people all around the world, in the nations of all the world, New Zealand, Australia, Malaysia, who worship God, Yahweh, these days. It has come to fulfilment to some extent. And all the nations will come and worship him because actually there's only one God, really. So verse 10, great monotheistic statement, for you are great and do wondrous things, you alone are God. None of the other so-called gods can do anything. Their works don't mount up to anything, whereas you truly are the God. Your wonders, your works are enormous. Their works are as nothing compared to yours, yours because you are the great one and do wondrous things, which is why we can pray. For you are a God who can change things. No point praying to a God who can't change anything. But the God who is... The sovereign Lord, he can change all things. And so throughout this psalm, he's called Lord in the other sense of the word. Look, for example, at uh, well, verse 8, that'll do. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Look carefully and you'll see it's not uppercase there, it's lowercase. Because the Hebrew word there is not Yahweh, the Hebrew word there is master, ruler. And in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 8, verse 7, throughout it he keeps on emphasising the masterliness of God, the lordship of God, the ruler. He is praying to the master and ruler of the universe who can change things and who can help him in the time of his trouble. But there is a second thing you need about the person you pray to. One is he's got to be in power and authority. The other is he's got to want to help you. He's got to be loving, kind, merciful, well disposed towards you. And that is what you see in Yahweh because of his character, his disposition. For he wants to save and rescue. For throughout the psalm, he is appealing to the character of God as forgiving, loving and gracious. He said in 5.13, but look at verse 15. It's summaries there, beautiful. But you, O Lord, are a, gracious, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There's another cross stitch to put over the other mantelpiece. Verse 15 is a beautiful verse. It actually is a direct quote from Exodus chapter 34 where God speaks to Moses and says, that's the kind of God I am. God is merciful, gracious. And so you can ask him for his mercy. It's why we know he answers prayer in verse 7, because he is powerful enough to do anything and loving enough to want to do it. It's that combination that makes our prayerfulness work. And so the relationship he has with God is critical. He's a godly servant in verses 3, 4, 16. Uh, there's nothing, he's, he's a one who is on God's side. But notice he's a servant Prayer is not a master ordering around his servants. Prayer is a servant asking his master for something. Some books on prayer tell you to tell God what to do. Never tell God what to do. He's God, you're not. Ask God if he would be so kind as to do it for you. And his prayer is profoundly personal. He prays for me and for my. There's nothing wrong to asking God for things for yourself. It brings God glory. For you think that he who rules the universe cares about you 
and is willing and able to change things in your life. That is our God, how glorious he is. And he knows he can pray like this because, verse 7, you answer me. He's the God who answers prayer. And he doesn't lose confidence in this God who answers prayers because he knew the love towards me, verse 13, that God has a, a, as part of his character. See, look at the confidence he has in verses 12, 13. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love towards me. The praise of God comes out of his loving care for us. And so he prays for the future. Again, it's the character of the godly person. It's the character of the man of prayer. The one who trusts in the sovereign God who loves and cares that we are optimistic. We have a look for the outcome, a hopeful expectation for the future that God will do great things. And so he prays that God would teach him unite him in his fear of God. He prays for the time when he will be able to thank God and glorify God. He prays for the time when the enemies will be ashamed because they see God actually looks after his people. And so when you move back from this psalm and look at the wider canvas of the scriptures, you will see that the psalmist's hope will come true one day for all nations will, according to Revelation 14, 15 verse 5, come to worship God, 15 verse 4. For this psalm is referred to there or alluded to there. When the, they sing the song of Moses in Revelation 15, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And on that day, we're told in 2 Thessalonians 1, that the enemies will come and be ashamed. And why will they be ashamed? Because they will see us. We who have believed. And so when the Lord Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marvelled at, at those who have believed, because our testimony to you is believed. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes, those who are the enemies of God will stand astonished and amazed that the people they persecuted, despised and rejected, have been cared for, comforted and looked after by God. That teaching of 2 Thessalonians 1 is anticipated in verse 17 of our psalm today. Read it tonight. It's a beautiful little psalm. It covers so many great ideas and there are so many good memory verses in it too.